Welcome to What Is It About the Weather, where once a week we get to explore the many ways that weather pokes and prods and winds and weaves itself into the fabric of our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelanik, and this week we're going to be wrapping up the series of Where Does My Weather Forecast Come From? So we're going to hit on the delivery portion of that. Now, before I jump into the topic, let me do one final quick reminder. What is it about the weather.com slash survey? If you haven't taken it, please, if, if you get this and you're listening to this on the New Year's Day or earlier, take a moment, complete the survey. It would be appreciated. And on that matter, as we get into 2018, you know, I've been looking at the statistics over the last couple of years. And I'm always a little amazed at where the podcast gets to around the globe. I think I'll use as the show art this week. So, so look at the image. I put it on Twitter earlier in the week. If you follow me, either the podcast or personally there, you would have seen it. But just all the places that the podcast has reached around the globe over the last couple of years. Pretty amazing. And it leaves me a little bit in awe. But, but thank you to everybody that has made that possible. You know, and in particular, the folks that help keep us kind of monetarily neutral, that is certainly very appreciated. And you can do that over at patreon.com slash weather. You know, the other thing that kind of caught my eye this week, I was doing some different things, getting ready for the podcast and whatnot. So I came across an old collection of weather proverbs by the Signal Corps. So these are essentially the same. You know, we did the episode about the telegraph and the role it played. So these are essentially that same group. And, you know, it's just kind of funny. If, if you ever wanted to know how important a snoring cat is to weather forecast, you'll enjoy checking that out. So go into the show notes and find the link there. It's a, it was an interesting kind of uh, chuckle. But also, as always, there's some interesting tidbits in there that I think are particularly useful and enjoyable to read about. Okay, let's jump in. Where does my weather forecast come from? Like I said, today we're going to be hitting on delivery, so actually getting the forecast in your hands or to your eyeballs or in your ears, whatever it might be. Now, we've had three previous episodes in this series. Episode 69 was about the data, and that was back on October 20th, I believe. The second one, episode 72, was on the models, so the first one got us things to the computers. The second one was about all the crunching that takes place in the computers. And that was on November 10th. And then the last one before this one, of course, was episode 76. And it was about the corrections. And in there, we really focused on taking the, what comes out of the models, which you think, you know, that's what's going to end up in my forecast, but really the fair amount of post model, processing, what we call post-processing, to try to make that forecast even better. And that was on December the 8th. So those are the three previous episodes. So if you get this episode and you maybe caught one or you know two and not all of them, but want to kind of catch all of them in the series, those are the previous three that make up part of this, where does my weather forecast come from? So as we focus on delivery, I will tell you that this is probably the area that I firsthand I know about, but relatively I know the least about because my 
delivery elements have been very focused on the private sector. All right, most of my clients have been business folks, companies that have had a specific need. Now, that could be tropical cyclone forecast. It could be seasonal outlooks, whatever it might be. But in terms of delivery, in many ways, it's a little less complicated than what happens for the vast majority of us who are getting a weather forecast. Some of the things like how do you get it to a mobile device and different things like that have certainly worked its way in the private sector. But we don't tend to have to deal with the same issues that broadcast meteorologists do or National Weather Service offices do. And this this stands true for anyone around the globe. If wherever you are, are watching or listening or reading, a lot of that is is more involved or it adds an element that again, I don't do on a regular basis. So much of what I'm presenting to you, while I understand how it works, is kind of a consumer of that information like you are. Now, realistically, what is trying to occur, what the people who are giving you a forecast are trying to do, fundamentally is consolidation. There is a plethora of weather data out there now. So many choices, right? This didn't used to always be the case. You know, and I was on Weather Brains episode a couple weeks back, and, and the guest on there was somebody who's kind of involved in this. And we had an interesting exchange about how satellite images, how they used to try to create essentially an animation of those images. Because so often, you know, it's like many things. One, one picture, you know, if something is fluid in its nature, trying to describe something with one picture can be particularly difficult, understanding trends and speeds and all those sort of things. Now, all that's so easy with computers, but it wasn't always the case. And the same is true of the amount of information, how many weather models there are, right? How many different sources of data there are. So all that has changed over time, right? And how we get that information, of course, has evolved as well. The key thing, though, is their goal is to try to get you the best of all that as well. That you know, It's not just trying to narrow down the data. It's trying to pick the elements that make any sense. Right? How do I take all this computer output, put my human spin on it, when appropriate, maybe blend all these components individually. And, and even, you know, that's happening on the computer side as well. So many of the automated forecasts that you might receive on a phone are also going through that same step. No longer is it just one model that might have some correction to it, and then it's thrown out there for your consumption. But that forecast that you're looking on in an app on a phone or on a website might also be a blend of multiple models that have been post-processed multiple times in a variety of ways. But fundamentally, end result, narrow it down to single forecast. Many apps will show you or have the ability or websites or individuals may present you what different models are saying. But their goal is ultimately to try to give you something from to act upon. And you can't necessarily act upon many 
conflicting forecast. So again, that's their job, whoever it might be, whether it's human or computer, right? Now, I mentioned when we were doing the correction stage that there's also a human post-processing element. And it's not just about applying some statistical correction. And let's say even if you go back 10 years in time, almost every forecast you would have gotten would have had some level of correction on it. And this really had to do with the resolution of where the models were at the time, you know, the data available for the location where you were, and just the quality at that point in time. Good enough in a broad sense, but maybe not good enough for a local forecast or forecast where you are. And back then, it was a human need to do that. Now, today, we probably see a little less of that. I think even the humans that interpret the outputs have more confidence in the models than they did, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But we've also found that this, as machine learning will get into this process, it's not quite there yet, right? There may be some cases where there have been good examples, but every day it's not quite there yet. Where people have this back knowledge and situational knowledge that isn't well represented yet in the computer space or in the technology space. And where that matters most is in extreme situations. You know, for an example, a snowstorm here in the southeast, right, where I'm sitting, southeastern U.S., they're not common. So having that human interaction and human interpretation and human take on it based on what they've seen in the past versus now and what the take might be. So I think in many cases, you know, you may look at your phone app and say, okay, it's saying it's sunny today and how many ever degrees and, you know, if it's off a little bit, so what, as long as it's close. But if you think about a big event coming, you know, a tropical cyclone coming your way or a big winter storm coming your way, I think we tend to look to the human component for two reasons, okay, two primary reasons, not the only two. One is we want to relate to a human giving us that information. We still have that need, right? We want to hear it from somebody or see it from somebody because it it allows us to sign a level of trust, if you will. But also because we believe that the human will add some value. So, you know, perceived value and perceived trust, let's say, are, are two different things. And realistically, humans can still better, and I've not seen any exception to this, no matter what space you're in, they can better handle conveying the nuances and the subtleties and the, you know, maybe the uncertainties and the sensitivities of a situation. If you've ever read something, like you read a headline and you go, oh, and you click on it and then you find whatever it was is, yeah, it's related to what the headline is, and yeah, you can understand why they chose those words, but in the end, the text of the of the article or what really happened doesn't necessarily support what that is. In our, in our minds, we want to get around that, okay? So we still count on the humans to improve, 
to explain, to examine, and present all those different things to us. Like I said, those nuances or, or you know, sensitivities of why it may be outcome A versus outcome B, and what are the real probabilities between the two, or even you know, is it an either or, or is it somewhere in between? Right now, machine learning will play a role in this going forward. There is no doubt. What I don't know and this is more of a social science thing, is if we will always want a human to present it to us humans, or I'm sure at some point we'll be faked by some AI that presents it as if they're a human, because we have this level of trust when we hear it from another human, whether that's accurate or not. I mean, we also know that that can lead us down a not-so-healthy path. But it'll really depend, I think, on, on how that learning is able to be displayed in a way that's comfortable for humans. So machine learning, keep an eye on it. And again, I have, was having that conversation with this person and kind of seen the evolution of from, you know, throwing out forecast via teletype machines to where we are today. And, you know, machine learning plays a role because there is no doubt also, I mean, let's be realistic here that computers can process actively much quicker than the human brain, right? The human brain, we're, we're interrupted by so many things. If you think about it, we've got all the other things that we have to do, you know, not run into another car, not walk into the middle of the street where vehicles are coming and going, just on top of, you know, trying to do these all these other things at the same time. So machine learning will take on some of that, but either the machine's got to learn to learn properly, or we've got to teach them to look for the right things. It's it's a little bit of both, right, as we use this whole AI world. I look forward to where it goes, but I can, you know, just what I know about forecasting in a given situation, the things I look for, I don't know that, you know, we've gotten the capabilities yet within the technology space to handle all that. But But again, that will change in time. That will change it. Now, I don't care what mechanism you use to get your forecast. Like I said, you could read it. You could listen to it. You could watch it. And watching can be watching a television station, you know, local or something like the Weather Channel or Weather Nation, whichever you might have on your various cable providers or cord cutting service, if you will, whichever, whichever you use. Or on an app, it doesn't matter how you're you're pulling these things in. The people that are bringing you this right still have a very challenging problem. In that, those receiving the information are multi generational, and any of you who've been involved in working with technology or or bridging that gap of technology across generations know that. You know, different people receive the information different way and are comfortable with different ways. Some folks may still want a, literally a physical newspaper in their hand and absorb it that way or put more trust in that. Yet we run the challenge there that it's not updated very quick. Then you got, let's say, the flip side of social media and the, and the chaos that it's caused. It can be useful. But when you've got so many of these social media platforms now no longer presenting things in a time, a linear time fashion, I may get pushed some bit of a forecast, 
Yet by the time it shows up in, in my feed, if you will, it's useless, right? So we've, we're still dealing, and this is the challenges of our reality where we are today, is we've got all these wonderful tools available to us. So many ways to give a consumer of a weather forecast timely and accurate information, yet we're still, for every advance we've made, we've muddied the water, if you will, in other ways. And so each with each of these advances has come its own challenges. So the understanding these delivery mechanisms and adapting to them, leveraging them, but recognizing that not everybody uses things the same way, that remains a major challenge for how we get forecast to folks. The other couple of things I think we'll deal with right, going forward is clearly that the technology is going to change. And that technology is going to input into how good are the models. It's going to input into how do we actually look at you know, a forecast. Because I can tell you that looking, trying to absorb things, and, and I've looked at this again and again, I still have yet to find a mobile app. And this includes on tablets as well. Tablet or phone that can give me, you now I, I absorb at a different level maybe, the type of information, weather information I need. But I still think even as a consumer that we would all probably benefit from some sort of holographic image that can be much bigger than the space at hand. And this gets into things like, you know, we have the Google Glass and these other things that haven't necessarily worked itself into our space effectively. But having some sort of bigger visualization is probably going to be critical. So how technology evolves in terms of what we absorb and how we absorb it is going to also continue to play a role. Not only a positive role, but a challenge into how we effectively get weather forecasts there. And we shouldn't forget the science. And we kind of talked about in the past how we use these primitive equations. They kind of, you know, are our basic governing knowledge. And we've evolved in our understanding, but particularly a lot in the mesoscale or the microscale, these, these smaller scales, individual tornadoes and understand how they work. We're still gathering a lot of knowledge and ability to understand these things. And part of that's been having the technology to really, I don't know, examine and or explore these phenomena, these smaller scale behaviors, and make sure that they're worked into the larger scale from a forecasting standpoint. Still hard to pick where an individual thunderstorm is going to pop up in my region in the summertime. Someday we'll probably get there. But I, th I think part of it is a technology, or, you know, it's a little of a chicken egg thing. You got to have the technology to examine properly, but we also need to have the scientific knowledge to put it into there. So a lot of theories, it, it's hard to model certain things that we might think we know or, or think that is, is logical, and that's going to become more prominent. And so we're still going to need to figure out ways to incorporate all that scientific knowledge because we can't even easily still do it today. I mean, all of our scientific knowledge is not necessarily represented in the models because they have to be somewhat simplified. But then, you know, how you turn around and present that same thing. In the past, we've had these grid points and we do some interpretation between the grid points. And I know, you know, companies like IBM, I even saw a presentation on this, are 
you'll get a forecast and it's no longer going to be a pre-generated forecast based on some grid point. You will have, yeah, you'll still somewhere back there, there's probably still a grid from which it works from, but it will do interpretation when that data is asked for. And this, this gets into where we're going with the technology. So in the end, while all these new capabilities are exciting, you still fundamentally are how, how I guess we're going to work with the delivery mechanisms themselves, expanding technology capabilities, and the scientific understanding, how all that's going to work both into just this little part of the process, into the delivery, but also the broader getting you your weather forecast is going to make it both challenging and interesting, I guess. Now, I kind of alluded to the AR thing with the Google Glass. I really think that probably the biggest changes you should be keeping an eye out for as a user of weather forecast, what I guess the biggest advances you'll see in the near future, probably incorporate that AR. You know, I was seeing something that was done where people could post themselves into Return of the, not Return of the Jedi, Last Jedi images, right? And I thought that was kind of a cool use of augmented reality. But we've been doing kind of that. I mean, you know, green screens are effectively doing that. And we've been doing it in, in the weather space for a long time. Yet, at the same time, these virtual studios and animations and that kind of stuff, you know, they've worked their, their way in. But oddly enough, we've kind of moved away from that recently. You'll see more of, like, if you watch a local weather station, they're using less green screen and more kind of video walls and that sort of thing. So it's still evolving as to what we like and how we use it. But I think as the devices get more mobile in terms of augmented reality, we're going to see more of that stuff. And you may get a different vision of, you know, watching a forecast that uses some sort of headset, VR headset or AR headset sort of thing. So keep an eye out for that. I also think, you know, and you've heard me talk about this, in terms of forecast confidence and forecast uncertainties, I do think we're going to break ground finally, somehow, some way, at better being able to share that sort of information. And I don't necessarily think we, we do a particularly good job yet. I've seen some creative ways to do it. And, you know, they seem to be close to onto something. Those are things to watch for. So AR, delivery of confidence and uncertainties, I think are probably the, the three things from the delivery standpoint where you as a user are going to see major changes in the next five to 10 years. But what does all this matter? In, in the end, I think what's probably most important as a consumer of the forecast is to understand where your forecast comes from, but also where their forecast comes from. So if you use a local television station or you turn into the Weather Channel or whatever it is, or you go to a website and they're giving you a forecast, understand where that forecast comes from. And if it's a human, interact with them, engage to get a little sense of that. But just understand a little bit about their process. And this is true of apps as well or websites. If you're going to those things to get a forecast, and that's fine, I understand why you, you're going to do it. At least know where the forecast comes from. Take some time to learn a little bit. So understanding, you know, if it's your local weather service office, and, and again, looking around the globe, who you count on. 
But knowing the tools they use and learning a little bit about that can help you in understanding even, you know, we get back to this whole bias thing, why they may have a certain bias in certain situations. And that bias could be a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but why they lean in a certain direction. So know where your forecast comes from by knowing where their forecast comes from. Technology or human, it doesn't matter. They're all creating from a variety of sources or a variety of data inputs. Learn a little bit about it. It'll make you a little more knowledgeable. All right, that wraps up our general thing. I, You know, the delivery I could have focused on some things that are very technology-based or, you know, actual final, how does it get to XYZ, but I didn't think that's really where it should go. However, however, I, I guess I'll throw this out to Kevin first and foremost, since this whole series was his idea. If you have questions, but this holds true of anybody. If I didn't hit on something well enough, or you want some additional resources, don't hesitate to reach out and let me know, right? What is it about the weather at gmail.com or just what is it about the weather.com slash contact? Just touch base. Let me know, hey, I'd like to know a little bit more about X. And, and here's the way I look at it. I can either answer your question, or if it's something that we need to do a supplementary thing, if, if something I'm digging into or you feel I left out could really make a whole other episode, I have no problem with doing that, or even a segment on an episode. I'd be glad to incorporate something that would enhance everybody's knowledge. You know, like I said all along, I could have probably done a full year on this topic, but I don't think everybody would have enjoyed that. So I'll be glad to answer your questions individually, or if it seems like it would be a broader a broader topic of interest, I'll be glad to cover that in a future episode. All right, so the data, the models, the corrections, the delivery, all have happened in the last three months, let's say, if you're looking for them. You'll see the links in the show notes. I'll put the links to the previous episodes as well. Again, hope you've enjoyed this dive a little bit further into how something gets from my temperature is X, how that information spans the process of getting inputted, looking forward from it, making sure that it's a correct forecast, and then back to my hands for a future date. Not necessarily a simple process, but an interesting one nonetheless. So let's close out with a little interesting tidbit I came across this week. Snow forecast. Now, we had an event here not too long ago, but we moved to the lake effect region in the U.S., and there, there are some different ones of these around the globe. But I got a chuckle out of a tweet that I saw where the forecast range was two to four. Right? And in the southeast, that would be inches of snow. In lake effect, it was two to four feet of snow. But it also highlighted how challenging doing a good lake effect snow forecast is. Still probably one of the most difficult things to forecast well. Kind of like trying to forecast individual tornadoes. It's it's a very localized component, and while we've gotten much better at it, and there are, are tools for it, it's hard. And along those lines, somebody was, the reason this was kind of in my brain is somebody asked me, when I'm doing snow forecast in the southeast particularly, what's kind of the first thing that I watch or pay attention to? And it's actually not the temperature. It's more how consistent the models are behaving with the amount of moisture that's available. We had the chance of another kind of snow event, which is petering out every day that we go along here in the Southeast again around New Year's 
because we're going to be getting some really cold air. But what I've been paying attention to, and it was a little easier even in that case because we didn't have this freeze, no freeze temperature line setting up. But I, I go back to the same thing, which is how much moisture is available to even be used. And this is kind of what drives crazy you know, lake effect snow forecast is you've got the moisture there, then you've got to start looking at the next components. But the first thing you're looking for for a lake effect setup is, is there moisture available to do it? And this has not just to do with, you know, the way the winds are blowing, but it's whether the lake that it's pulling from is frozen over. And that's why the lake effect zones tend to shift in the U.S. Because the shower, shallower waters tend to freeze over in the wintertime. The more open waters don't. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. But here in the southeast, it's, you know, are we getting that push of Gulf moisture into where we are? Again, these are the nuances. These are the human element. These are the things that we look for first and foremost when we're trying to convey that forecast to somebody else. That happens to be my thing. Eh, It may not be everyone's. Okay. I alluded to it a little bit at the beginning, but let me just say, as we close out 2017 and enter 2018 again, we've been on this journey for about two years. I know it's not exactly two years, but I can't say thank you enough to all of you who have supported the podcast in the various ways. You're kind of like my little, I don't know, lightning bolts, if you will. Some of you charge up the podcast with your financial support, either by Patreon or PayPal, and that's a big piece. I can't say that it's not. But some of you also do it with show ideas, like Kevin sharing this one, and and many of you have done it over the years. Okay, some more than others, but that's okay. I you know I know different levels of engagement. That interaction, whether it's it's saying I like this or thanks for doing that or you know here's an idea for something I'd be interested in hearing about, also very important. The little lightning bolts that spread out and share right? That tell others about the podcast. Knew somebody who gotten a new fancy device for the holidays, let's say. I showed them how to pull a podcast to pull their, their favorite one, you know, the only podcast they listen to. No, I'm just kidding. But for those of you who take that step, who took the time to do the survey, who take the time to for, provide the support, again, whichever way you've done it, thank you. And for those that never have, it's never too late to start. Whether you're new to the podcast or been around a long time, all these things help. All of them matter. All of them allow us to continue to have these interactions. So as we kick into 2018, I will say I hope that you have an incredible year. That it's full of enjoyment excitement, prosperity, and of course that it challenges you in, in productive ways, not, not bad ways. And just every so often may weather work itself into that equation for you, your life equation. Because out there every day it's doing it to us. It's a part, whether we see it actively or not, because as we all know, and we've all learned, we've all examined and explored, there's much more to weather than the weather itself. Thank you, too. Watch you for...
production. We're tired of hearing our uncle grovel, so please support him on patreon.com slash weather.